Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth here, and with me today is my colleague, a Senior Litigation Counsel, uh, Russ Ryan. Russ, welcome back to Administrative Static. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, John, so John's not not with us. He's off, uh, I think he's on vacation, actually. Uh, this week, I started to say he's off, off litigating, but I think that happens tomorrow. I think he's on vacation right now. And we're also joined by Litigation Counsel, uh, Shang Lee. Uh, Shang, welcome back to uh, Administrative Static. Thanks, Mark. So I wanted to have uh, Shang and Russ on uh, today to talk about the lawsuit uh, that was just filed in uh, uh, in the Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, again, so NCLA is representing the Cato Institute and the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in a lawsuit against the Department of Education and Secretary of Education Cardona and a CEO, uh, or not CEO, I forget his title, but Richard Cordray is the sort of architect behind some of the student loan debt forgiveness so we decided to sue him too. So uh, let me start with you, uh, Shang. Uh, tell me exactly what this lawsuit covers, because there are so many student loan debt programs that the administration has thrown against the wall to see what will stick. Which one does this particular lawsuit take on? Yeah, that, that's right. And and you, our listeners may be familiar with the, the half trillion dollar program that the Supreme Court just struck down, but there are so many others. And, and, and this particular one concerns um, several lawful uh, adjustments to several lawful uh, loan forgiveness programs. And uh, what those programs say is that if a borrower makes a certain number of monthly payments, so uh, typically about 20 years worth of monthly payments pursuant to a qualified uh, repayment plan, that borrower can get you know, the remaining balance of loans forgiven. And if that, if that borrower makes those monthly payments while working for a nonprofit employer, then it's only 10 years worth of monthly payments and, and they can be forgiven. Uh, so what the are, department is trying, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, so these are two programs that Congress came up with. The Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program forgives your student loans after 10 years. If you work for a nonprofit and you make 10 years of payments, the other one I think is the Income Driven Repayment Program. If you make 20 years of payments under some circumstances or 25 years under other circumstances, then the remainder of your loans can be forgiven. So what is the Department of Education trying to do to these programs that is unlawful? Yeah, what they're doing now is they're going to let, uh, they're going to start counting periods of non-payment as payments. Again, the statute's very clear. Wait, wait, wait. Come again? You have to make... They're counting non-payments <laughs> right. as payments? That that sounds backwards. That's right. There's something called forbearance that uh, a borrower uh, can go into for a variety of reasons. It could be because um, you're struggling with paying rent. You could be because you're going back to school. It could be because of, you know, some medical problems. It, there's a host of reasons a, a borrower can ask for forbearance, either from a, a, a servicer that the department hires or from the secretary, uh, him or herself. And, uh, and during that period of forbearance, the borrower isn't making any monthly payments. So for years and years, uh, those times, those months do not count towards your uh, public service loan forgiveness requirement of, of 10 years or your income-driven requirement of whether it's 20 or 25 years, 
Uh, and what the department is doing is they're making what's called a one-time account adjustment, uh, which makes it sound like they're doing, you know, fixing records, but no, they're just actually counting um, non-payments as payments. Uh, well, which, three years, which three is, years of payments. So you already got a break from the government. You said, hey, I can't make my loan payments right now. I'd like to enter into forbearance uh, so, uh, so I can take a break from making these student loan payments. The government said, fine, you got that break. And now the government's coming back and saying, oh, you know what? We're just going to cover those, count those non-payments as payments over that three-year period or up to three-year period, yeah. I guess. Yeah, it's, so what happened was this affected at least 3.6 million uh, participants in the income-driven program uh, and, and gave them at least three years of, uh, of non-payments as credit towards payments. Um, so what's the total which, price tag for this? So it's, it's hard to calculate. depends on what those payments are. Uh, so one way to look at this is uh, uh, three years is 36 monthly payments, right? You know, that, that's, what they, that's what the term of forbearance where no payments were, were being made. And if you get forgiven before you make those 36 monthly payments, that's essentially getting 36 months of payments forgiven uh, unauthorized in an unauthorized way. If you multiply that by the 3.6 million affected borrowers, that's 130 million monthly payments. Um, so if you, yeah, I don't know, that's just that's like $175 billion. Yeah, it wounds up being, it could, yeah, it, the price tag could be the hundreds of billions. And, and the other way to look at this is the department on um, July 14th said they're going to go forward with uh, the cancellation of the first tranche of this group, 800,000 people, and that's going to be 30, uh, 39 billion. So 39 billion for 800,000, but we know that 3.6 million is the total. So if you if you do the math there, that works out to be about 175 billion dollars. I thought I saw some analyses that said this would be at least as much as the program that the Supreme Court just struck down, like almost a half a billion dollars. Half a trillion dollars. Half a trillion. I'm yeah. Sorry. yeah. Well, yeah. this program alone wouldn't, but combined with some of the other things that they announced at the same time, uh, it. it would. But this particular lawsuit, uh, at least the math I've seen, suggests about 175 billion. But you know, but that's still. I mean, Russ, I'll ask. I'll ask you the question. Uh, the Supreme Court just struck down the last bad idea from this Department of Education, as implicated by the Major Questions Doctrine. Do you think 175 billion dollar uh, forgiveness would be implicated? Would implicate the Major Questions Doctrine? Well, one of the other issues in that case was whether it's an, um, a violation of the spending and, and appropriations clauses of the, the, uh, Article One, and I think here. It may be even clearer. I mean, they're basically when you say you don't have to pay those three years worth of payments due, that's effectively taxpayers are paying that money for you uh, without any congressional authority at all. And so I think that's a problem. I do think that there's just so much going on here and it's so controversial and so um, so significant that this should, again, raise major questions issues. And I think we're going to push that in the, in the lawsuit. Yeah. So I at least assume, Shang, that the department went through a regular notice and comment rulemaking process to, pro to propose <laughs> this uh, ludicrous idea. Is that is that right? You might think so. With a 12-figure with a price tag, that would be reasonable. But what happened actually was they did this through a press release uh, sometime in April 2022, uh, and it just, that was it. That's, they announced this through a press release and didn't tell anybody um, how much it will cost, didn't consider how much it will cost, 
and uh, and just move forward with it. And didn't even didn't even estimate how many people are affected because they only said 3.6 million under the income driven program, but they made no disclosures as to how many of the uh, public service loan forgiveness participants would be affected. Wow. So what what happens now? So we, we filed suit uh, on behalf of Cato and the Mackinac Center, uh, and we're, we've asked the court to, um, to enjoin or, or issue what's called a temporary uh, uh, restraining order against the plan to cancel $39 billion for the first tranche. Because, again, the department announced that on July 14th, and they said the letters were going out in the mail, and within 30 days of the letters going out in the mail, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the cancellation begins. So 30 days after July 14th, brings you to mid-August. So that's, that's going to happen next week. And so we filed a lawsuit last Friday. We filed a, uh, a motion to, to get a restraining order on Monday. Uh, so we're, asking, we're telling the court, hey, you've you got to stop this uh, because even, even before you reach you know, a final ruling on the merits, because, uh, because that will be too late. Once the $39 billion goes out the door, it becomes very, very difficult and very, very messy to, to get that money back in. Yeah, absolutely. I would think it would be be very difficult. So, uh, why why is the department uh, doing this, Russ? I mean, what's the what's the logic here? The Supreme Court just shot them down. Just said you can't do this. You know, go back to Congress. And yet they didn't go back to Congress. They cooked up another. You know, they they said, well, if we can't do it under the Heroes Act, then we'll try to do this wild interpretation of the Higher Education Act. Um, well, I, I'm not a political analyst, and that's not what we're you know, in business for, but sure. to me, I can't avoid the inference that this is essentially a giveaway to a certain political constituency, meaning college educated voters and the academic uh, industry, um, two very important political groups. And, um, you know, I hate to be cynical, but I think this is just sort of a gambit to please certain people at the expense of ordinary taxpayers. And, you know, as, as bad as the legal issues are, I've always been just so frustrated by the grotesque unfairness of it all. And um, it is unfair for the people who made their payments and didn't seek forbearance and for other folks as well. Shane, we've, you know, we, we, we've heard some misunderstandings about this, about this lawsuit. Uh, did, is there any of those in particular you want to speak to? Uh, yeah, I mean, for one, there's just so many, um, so many different loan forgiveness programs, and, and I think the biggest one is something that uh, the Wharton School estimates to be half a trillion dollars under this new uh, repayment plan called Save, and, and that's quite unlawful as well. And I think we will want to challenge it, uh, but because repayments don't start until October, it's a little, uh, a little less urgent than this than this one, which which uh, starts, you know, money starts flowing out the door next week. Uh, so that's the reason why the, the, we prioritize this way. And, and the second is, if you look at the department's press releases, they call these things, these adjustments, counting non-payments as payments, fixes, fixes to uh, 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 to to their programs. And, and to be fair, I think the department does have a lot of incompetent bureaucrats, and there are a lot of problematic record keeping. But and, and those should be fixed, right? But counting payments as uh, sorry, counting non-payments as payments are not just some sort of, uh, you know, administrative fix, fixing typos, that sort of thing. It, it's just categorically ignoring the, the words on, in the statute. It absolutely is. And I we appreciate your 
being on top of this, Chang, and, and bringing this lawsuit. And we'll certainly keep our listeners here at Administrative Static up to speed on what's happening with this case. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Welcome back to Administrative Static. It's my pleasure to have as a special guest during this uh, segment, the Honorable Linda Chavez, the chairman of the uh, Center for Equal Opportunity. Uh, Linda, welcome to Administrative Static. It's great to be with you. Well, you're you're a pro at uh, this podcasting and radio hosting <laughs> uh, business, uh, but it's but it's uh, but I'm wanted to have you on the podcast to, to talk about a lot of different things, but maybe the the one that we have time for is this recent Supreme Court decision uh, on uh, affirmative action and and some of the sort of diversity-based logic that Harvard and the University of North Carolina were using for making admissions decisions. What what did you make of of the decision? And and I mean, maybe we can take half a step back and if there's anything sort of leading up to it that you wanted to talk about too. Well, uh, CEO, my organization has been very heavily involved in the whole question of preferences in college admissions. And in fact, we've done over 70 studies uh, looking at the way uh, race has been used in college admissions. And what we found is that it was quite pervasive, um, most pervasive at the most elite schools, but even at state schools where uh, you would not expect uh, as much. And University of North Carolina is one of the, the schools that we studied, and we also studied uh, Harvard. Um, it's been, um, unfortunately, um, it, it has been the preferred maf- method uh, for universities uh, going back, uh, really, to the uh, early 1970s. Mm. And we always believed that it was illegal and unconstitutional. And so, um, obviously, we filed amicus uh, briefs in all of the major cases, including uh, the most recent cases, and we were very pleased with the decision. Yeah, absolutely. So I remember back in the early 2000s, Sandra Day O'Connor had said that, well, you know, this is this is constitutional now, but only for 25 more years, <laughs> right. which I'm not sure where that, where that number came from. But it does so happen that, uh, you know, the way the 25 years worked out, the folks who are entering college this fall, it will be 25 years by the time that's they right. graduate. That, so that's right. You know, and I, I think um, I, I've been talking uh, this week to with a group of uh, law students that uh, Center for Equal Opportunity has brought into Washington. And thanks to NCLA for helping uh, us host uh, that group. Happy to do it. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think people don't understand is that, um you know, this uh, originally affirmative action, the idea was simply to cast a wider net and to provide training opportunities if people couldn't quite uh, meet the, the standards for particular jobs or for college admissions, you'd create programs of uh, competitive compensatory education, for example, Uh, but it very quickly devolved into just using race as a proxy. 
Uh, and unfortunately, what happened is that schools like Harvard, um, while it did uh, their program did increase uh, increase the number of black students admitted, turned out most of those students were either uh, the children of affluent African Americans or uh, they were immigrants uh, from Africa and uh, from the Caribbean. And certainly with respect to the uh, African students uh, who were admitted, uh, you couldn't make the argument that somehow this was uh, making up for all of the debilities that you know came about as a result of slavery. Um, so uh, it really got off track and more importantly, it violated the whole spirit of the civil rights law, which was in Martin Luther King's uh, famous words, uh, that people be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. So I was talking uh, with Gail Harriet yesterday about, about the decision, and, and she uh, indicated that some people had said to her, uh, well, should we be happy about this? Because, uh, you know, I guess some people point to, to sort of the loophole, if you want to call it that, in Chief Justice Roberts' decision allowing sort of uh, essays to still be written that talk about uh, the, the different sort of obstacles one has overcome, which could certainly include a race-based obstacle that, that one has overcome. And, and will that allow the universities to, uh, to, to sort of ignore this decision? So how big a loophole do you think it is? Do you think universities will try to ignore it? Or do you think folks are maybe making too much out of that? No, I think universities very much, uh, those universities that relied uh, on race as a proxy uh, for uh, disadvantage, for example, are going to try to figure out ways. And I've already heard, uh, I was at a uh, seminar that was uh, run uh, in New York City at City University of New York Graduate School. And uh, their uh, advocates of affirmative action were already talking about, for example, using zip codes. Hmm. Uh, and and because uh, the United States still remains a country, even though there is integration, there's fair housing laws, uh, there are neighborhoods that are predominantly African-American neighborhoods that are predominantly Latino, et cetera, uh, and that if you uh, targeted based on uh, zip code, maybe you could get away with doing that. But I'm here to say that if you try to do that, uh, groups like ours will be looking at you and you can't use a race-neutral means to uh, try to achieve a race-specific end. Mm. Uh, that's intentional discrimination. And the fact that you try to use something that looks facially neutral uh, but is, in fact, discriminatory doesn't uh, mean that you're not uh, discriminating. Right. So it might be a little bit better in the sense that you wouldn't necessarily be picking the affluent kids that, that you were yes, talking about before. Right. Uh, but it still might be intentional way, discrimination. You you could, in fact, schools have always been able to use socioeconomic status as uh, a criteria. And there's nothing that violates the law or the Constitution there. But you have to consider uh, that a kid from Appalachia, for example, maybe his parents were uh, mine workers and, and they're out of work and, and that kid grew up uh, poor, uh, that that kid's also disadvantaged and that person has to be um, treated equally with somebody who is disadvantaged, who happens to be black or Latino. Uh, and one of the interesting things about discrimination against Asian students is that many uh, Asian students, even though they may score very well on tests, they may do very well in school, come from low socioeconomic status. Uh, and if we were giving advantages based on socioeconomic status, uh, it would advantage a lot of Asians who were excluded uh, under the racial schemes that Harvard University of North Carolina used. 
Do you expect the racial composition of the student body to change at, at places like North Carolina and, and Harvard? Yes. Yeah, you will see it because we saw, you know, California outlawed uh, racial preferences in college admissions. And uh, you saw the number of black and Latino students drop. It's at campuses like Berkeley and UCLA. But interestingly, what you saw was the overall number of black students graduating from the University of California system increased. And that's because the students who would have gotten into Berkeley or UCLA may end up going to San Diego or Riverside or uh, other schools uh, in the system. But the chances are because they're getting into schools where their grades and test scores are uh, equivalent to the test scores and grades of whites and other students, they're actually likely to succeed there. Uh, and uh, there's a whole uh, uh, theory, and, and I think it's more than a theory, uh, that you know when you use race as a proxy and you give preference based on race, you end up with mismatch and you end up disadvantaging, and that we might actually have more um, black uh, lawyers, for example, Richard Sander has written about this, uh, if, uh, in fact, we had used race-neutral uh, admissions and students were going to the schools where their qualifications were the same as other students. Sure, I could, I could see that. Uh, I did see, uh, I'm not sure if it was the president of the University of North Carolina or maybe it was somebody on the board of trustees who said, well, you know, we're, we're going to listen to the Supreme Court. We're going to do uh, what they said. Now, what they say publicly and what they do behind the scenes might be, might be two different things. What do you anticipate will be the next sort of uh, milestone here or thing that, that CEO has to watch out for? Well, I think we're going to have to uh, watch out for exactly what I described, which is schools pretending to be following the law, saying, well, we're not using race as the factor uh, or a major factor in, in decision making. We're going to use uh, other means, but then trying to specifically devise means that are going to end up with results. I mean, the, the whole point is our law guarantees equal opportunity. It does not guarantee equal right, uh, equal uh, outcomes. And I think that's the very big difference between progressives today who want only to look at racial balancing. They want the numbers to turn out a certain way rather than looking at individuals and deciding that individuals are guaranteed equal rights and equal protection of the laws and that they should have equal opportunity. And do you think the decision will have ramifications outside of the education world? Absolutely. Uh, we're already seeing uh, that um, corporations are now being challenged on some of uh, what they do because they've taken the idea of preferences. Now, in terms of hiring, uh, preferences uh, have been shot down. Uh, racial preferences, quotas, et cetera, have been shot down uh, under Title VII uh, of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and so uh, the, the field has been better uh, in the employment area than it has in, in college admissions, for example. But I do think with the new emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and many corporations, particularly in the aftermath of the uh, killing of George Floyd and all of the protests that followed that, you saw a lot of corporations rushing uh, to uh, accept the notion of DEI and again, going to equity outcomes. And once you do that, uh, you're uh, skirting with violating the law. And we're going to be looking at that. So we only have about one minute left. I maybe just give you an opportunity if there was anything else about the decision in particular that you wanted to, uh, to, to highlight uh, or any other sort of results from it that you think that we ought to be paying 
uh, attention to? Well, I think one of the things I, uh, I think people do need to pay attention to is that if your interest is in helping Blacks, Latinos, uh, and Asians, uh, all of whom who've faced discrimination in this country, uh, the better way to do it than giving preferences to groups that are uh, groups that you've decided deserve that preference, and Asians were not one of the groups that were decided. There are much better ways to do it. And sometimes it takes more work, more effort. Uh, you do have to close the skills gap. Uh, you can't just pretend the skills gap doesn't exist. And that means providing more education, uh, educational choice and opportunity in uh, lower years. That's HAT. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Linda Chavez here on Administrative Static. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you.